But I have to say, I wasn't always into interest in microbiology. I originally started with marine biology, and then I focused on smaller and smaller things. And because I realized how important microbes are, and maybe I'll give you a quick example here. So if you, if you get up in the morning, right, and you take your first breath, you breathe oxygen. And well, without microbes, that wouldn't be possible, right? If you go back in Earth history, about 2.3 billion years ago, some microbes figured out how to fix CO2 to produce sugar and as a byproduct to produce oxygen. And that, that was a disaster first because oxygen was poised for many organisms back then, but they adapted and using oxygen and gain a lot of energy out of it that allowed the whole evolution of the larger, higher organisms, including us humans. Forget frequently asked questions, common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field, sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Chris Rinka, PhD. He's a future fellow of the Australian Center for Ecogenomics, also associated with the University of Queensland. We're going to talk about plastic-eating superworms and uh, new bacterial and archaeal lineages, possibly. So, but again, first with uh, plastic degradation. So, Christian, thank you for coming. Well, thanks, Richard. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, if you would, tell me a bit about your background and how you got into the area of research you're working in right now. Yeah, sure. So as you said, I'm a, I'm a researcher and a group leader here at the University of Queensland in uh, sunny Brisbane, Australia. And my research focuses on, on microbiology, mostly environmental microbiology. So we're looking into the microbes, which microbes occur in certain habitats and what's what's the role there. But I have to say I wasn't always into interest in microbiology. I originally started with marine biology and then I focused on smaller and smaller things and because I realized how important microbes are. And maybe I'll give you a quick example here. So if you if you get up in the morning, right, and you take your first breath, you breathe oxygen and well Without microbes, um, that wouldn't be possible, right? If you go back in Earth history, about 2.3 billion years ago, some microbes figured out how to how to fix CO2 to produce sugar and as a byproduct to produce oxygen. And that, that was a disaster first because oxygen was poisonous for many for many organisms back then, but they adapted and using oxygen and gain a lot of energy out of it that allowed the whole evolution of the larger, higher organisms, including us humans. So. Without microbes, there would be no oxygen and uh, there wouldn't be any humans, right? And if you, if you again go ahead, if you in the morning for breakfast, you would eat some bread, some cheese, you know, some yogurt. Again, we need microbes, lactobacillus, yeast to produce that. So again, microbes are very important. If you, if you eat this then, right, it goes in your digestive tract. And we know now that we have approximately the same number of microbes on and in our body in terms of cell numbers than we have human cells. And microbes are very important for the digestion, right? For example, so some substances like some fibers, we could not digest without microbes. So it's really important. Yeah, everything we eat has been worked on by microbes. And after we eat it, it's worked on them by, again, so unless exactly. it's man-made, man-made stuff that is, uh, you know, that has no natural compounds in it, maybe like a Twinkie, but any real food, uh, you know, has been worked on by microbes and is worked on again. Yeah, the Twinkie might go 
straight through, but everything else that can be degraded, yes, the microbes will, will help. And then maybe the last thing I want to say, so if you're dead, people don't want to talk about it, but if you go to the toilet, right, we get rid of your waste, it goes away, but it doesn't really go away. It, you know, it basically goes to a treatment plant, wasteful treatment plant. And then again, the workers there are the microbes that, that break it further down. So yeah, microbes are really important for our daily lives. And that's, that's mainly why I'm interested in them. How did you find the ones that uh, eat plastic? You know, how did that start? Yeah, yeah, that that actually started more or less with a, with a with a personal journey. So I was I was working in the U.S. and I really liked the sail. So sail, sorry. So I I got an old sailboat and my wife and I fixed it up. And then at some point we said, okay, we save some money and we just go sailing for a year. And we started on a long trip from the U.S. to Mexico and then to the South Pacific, all the way to Australia and. We really enjoyed it. I mean, it's, you know, you can go to all those beautiful places like Bora Bora, Tahiti. It's like, you know, like, yeah, this is it's like paradise, really. And cool. we did, yeah, we did realize though. So we stayed on one, for example, one island in Tomodos. There's so many uninhabited islands there. We stayed there for about a week. Yeah. Um, really enjoyed it. It was like paradise, lots of snorkeling, but we did, we did find there's a bit of plastic there. And then we decided, well, you know, we stayed there for a week. Let's go ahead and actually clean up this island and see what we can find. And we came up with like two large bags of plastic garbage. And, uh, you know, if you look at that, some of that were bottles from the US, from Japan, from China. So this island had that island that was about 2000 miles away from any continent had plastic debris. And that's when I realized that, you know, you cannot really escape and go, you know, escape to paradise. Uh, plastic plastic uh, waste is going to catch you wherever you are. and. And that's how my interest started. And when I was then, you know, in Australia, starting a new job here at the university as a microbiologist, I thought, well, what can I do as a microbiologist to look into the plastic waste crisis? And that's that's how my interest actually got kindled in it. Yeah, very interesting. Um, okay, so what have you found? It looks like you found a, a type of worm that will eat certain plastics or what is it? Yeah, yeah. So our experiments was we used uh, the superworm, and I have to say it's it's called the common name is superworm, but it's technically an, an insect larvae. So if you actually let it, it will become a pupa and then turn into a beetle. So it's a larvae, and insect larvae they have they have very good mandibles, those mouth parts. So they're very good, you know, chewing into things, and that's why we said that okay, we we're gonna try and see if they can actually also eat uh, eat plastic polystyrene. That's that's what we tested. And yes, okay. um, so we didn't know the beginning, but uh, they they did after, it took them about 24 hours after we gave them polystyrene that they were actually exploring it and then eating their way into those polystyrene blocks. And we found that they can actually survive on the polystyrene and even gained a little bit weight by eating only, only the polystyrene. Hmm. Okay, well, did you look into their guts? I mean, what did you do once they ate some of the polystyrene? Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's their health? Like what happened? Yeah, so we we did we did assess their health to see if they can go to the whole life cycle, and um, yes, I mean they didn't gain as much weight as larvae that were fed on their regular feed. That's like the wheat bran, right? But they could still they could still make it through the whole life cycle and develop then into a pupa and a beetle. So we could show that. But yes, we were of course interested in you know why how can they how can they survive? They must be able to gain energy, and that's why we looked into the gut, into the gut microbes. And we did find that it changes quite a bit if you feed them polystyrene. And some of those microbes in the polystyrene groups, they actually encoded enzymes involved in the degradation of the polystyrene. So what we concluded from that is that it really works apparently that way, that the, the worm kind of chews its way through it. 
and breaks the plastic in smaller particles. And then the microbes in the gut, they do actually the heavy lifting and they, they break down the plastic and further. And, and that way, you know, the microbes can, can sustain themselves. And there's also energy for the worm to lift up. Do they have these compounds normally or they only develop them after they ate some plastic? They did they change epigenetically to be able to, you know, to have this kind of stuff in place? Yeah, that is a, that is a very good question. Um, what, what we believe is that they they have those enzymes somewhat in place before. So what the superworms usually originally they come from like uh, Central America, right? So they are kind of a tropical species. And what they eat there is they eat a lot of uh, rotten plant material, leaves, fruits, uh, tree trunks, whatever whatever they can find. And if you look into the waxy layers, right, that you have on fruits and, and, and leaves, that is a natural polymer, right? It's not as long as the synthetic polymers that we produce out of plastic, but it is a natural polymer. And, and that's why we believe that some enzymes that can degrade those natural polymers, they can also to some degree use to degrade the synthetic polymers like polystyrene. So I think that's where it came from. And then, of course, if you, if you give, you know, the, the superworm only polystyrene, that the microbes that can degrade that, they are going to increase in abundance and the other ones are slowly going to die off. So I think that's how but it works. What was doing the degrading? Was it the cells of the worm itself or was it microbes that inhabited the worm that were able to do it? Yeah, so we used a new method called metagenomics to get all the DNA of all the microbes and then we looked at the genes actually. So that's that's the stage where we are. And the microbes actually had all the genes that encoded the enzymes. So we really believe that the microbes are actually essential to, to break down the plastic. But did they have the microbes before you introduced plastic to them? Did you look and see or only after you introduced plastic? No, no, the microbes, the microbes were there before, but uh, the microbial community changed, right? So if, if you have a superworm and they eat the regular food, like the wheat bran, you have a very diverse community in there of microbes, you know, as, as you should have healthy, right? And then if you give them polystyrene, then those com- the community changes. And what we, what we have found that the microbes that can potentially degrade the plastic, they are higher in abundance. So, which makes sense, right? Because those are the ones that can still survive of the plastic and the other ones cannot. So in a nutshell, the community, the original community changes. And we believe that the microbes that can degrade the plastic, they increase and they, they flourish, right? Versus the other ones slowly die off because they have no food, really. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Why would worms have these uh, microbes that can degrade plastic? Like, what what function are they serving in the worm? You know, that's possible in addition to digesting plastic. Because I would think most worms, again, they don't encounter it normally. So, what's the other uses of these microbe or microbes? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's why what we have hypothesized is again that you know they in nature they degrade substances like like waxy layers, like wax wax layers on fruits and leaves. And, and they are, they are, as I said, they are long polymers, right? So that's what the natural diet is. 
And that means the microbes in the gut are very well suited to degrade those natural polymers. Now, if you give them like a plastic or polystyrene, right, it's, it's slightly different, but it seems to be close enough that at least some of those enzymes can to some degree then, instead of degrading the wax layer on a, on a leaf, degrade the plastic. But, you know, having that said, there's still a lot of research we have to do because at this point, right, we know, we know all the genes for all the enzymes and what we, what we want to do in the, in the, over the next years is to, to have those microbes, to culture them, right, in, in the laboratory. So only the microbes by themselves without the superworms. And then we can do more experiments with the microbes, right? We can give them different kinds of plastic. We can, we can use several techniques, gene silencing with CRISPR or whatnot to really figure out which, which enzymes are involved and characterize those enzymes more. So that's, that's, that's our goal also for the next years. And, and I should probably say that, you know, people ask me, so what's the, what's the future? What's the end goal there, right? Are we going to have like gigantic farms with like millions of superworms and we feed them plastic and um, you know, it's, it's possible, but my vision is, and I think it scales way better, is we know already again that the microbes have the enzymes, right? So if we can actually produce the microbes, so that's, that's done way cheaper in, in larger amount that we can harvest the enzymes, then we can then actually use the enzymes on the plastic, let's say in a recycling process. And we can, we can use that approach to break down the plastic, focusing on the microbes and not necessarily, you know, having superworms involved in that process. If that makes sense. Oh, so you want to just culture the microbes and have them eat the plastic, but have you been able to do that in a dish? You know, just put in a little bit of plastic with the microbes and do they eat it when they have to be in the worm to do that? Yeah, yeah, that's that's what we're actually investigating right now because the, the worm definitely first, you know, shreds the plastic into smaller particles. So that's something we could easily, you know, mimic in the lab and you can do this on an industrial scale, like shredding plastic that's put, you know, is, is done already right now. So that shouldn't be hard. And then we feed that to the microbes. And, um, you know, those are, those are really, that's active research we're working on right now. But I can tell you already that we, we did find some microbes that, that could survive on a diet where we gave them, you know, no, no other carbon source, but only plastic. And they could survive on it. And now we're picking out those microbes and investigate them further and see, okay, what enzymes do they have? So I think there's a good chance that we find those microbes that can actually degrade the plastic. Well, okay. I mean, there's tons of microplastics everywhere from, you know, all the interviews I've been doing. So what about in the microplastics environment? You know, aqua, the aqueous environment, you introduce the bacteria, they chew up the microplastics or do they just turn them into nanoplastics? Like, a, you know, as part of this digestion, what do the microbes turn the plastic into? What do they digest it into? Yeah, exactly. That that is a very good question. So, I mean, if we if we would let the microbes wor work on that, right? They would, in our case, polystyrene. It looks like they break it down into styrene monomers, which is good, right? But then some microbes have actually proteins uh, transporters to transport that into the cells, and then they can just metabolize it further, right? Basically, included in their in the main metabolism, they would also produce some CO two, for example, right? And that's it's okay, but our idea is that we actually we use only specific enzymes of those microbes, right? And we would then say, okay, we have the, we have the enzymes that break down the polystyrene into styrene monomers, and then we stop there, right? And then those, those building blocks, those monomers can then be used to make new plastic. So that way we would, we would have very good control over each step of the process. 
And I think that that is a big advantage because if you you know if you give it to microbes or not, and they metabolize it all the way, produce CO two in the process, you know, release some sugars. That's nice, but it's way more helpful in my opinion if you can get the enzymes for only specific steps and say, okay, we want to break down the plastic to a basic building block, and then we can use that to make new plastic. So, really having more control is using the enzymes rather than the whole microbe. I would say. Well, again, so you're sure that it's breaking it down into monomers or is it uh, other intermediate forms that it's breaking stuff down into? And what what is the use of the organism? Is it used as an energy source for food? I guess it looks like it is, right? Yeah, exactly. So in what the organism would do once it's, you know, once it's like styrene, that they're actually, so I should say, you know, polystyrene is then broken down to styrene monomers and styrene actually does occur in nature. Um, it's not very common, but it does occur. So there are actually enzymes out there that to break it further down. And yes, that can be used as a carbon and as an energy source. So once you have styrene, you can do that. That's pretty well established, actually. Um, and yes, the, the other question. So we still, I think we know some of the enzymes, but we still don't know all of the enzymes that are involved in the break. So at this point, it looks like polystyrene can be broken down into styrene monomers, right? And that, that works out also if you look at the chemistry of it. But we definitely have to investigate that more and see if there are other enzymes involved and, you know, uh, to understand the whole process better. Well, what about polycarbonate, berberine? I mean, all these other plastics that are commonplace. So it looks like just polystyrene, but uh, what about other plastics? Yeah, yeah, that is a good question. And um, we are definitely investigating other plastics too. So for example, you mentioned, you know, obviously the ocean. We know a lot of plastic ends up in the ocean, right? It's then broken down to microplastics. And we started a project uh, to look into marine uh, bacteria and to see if they can break down other plastics. It was like polyethylene, polypropylene. We also added polystyrene. And, and it seems that's also early stages, right? But it seems that there are some microbes there that are involved in polyethylene breakdown. So I think that's very promising. We also did uh, a study where we looked at, you know, that there's a lot of big data sets out there where people sequence data or samples from the ocean. And it seems surprisingly, and that's not published yet, so I shouldn't say too much about it, but that we found that in the deeper ocean, there are actually more enzymes present that could potentially degrade plastic than the surface ocean. So I think that that's where we start. And then, you know, we would take samples, let's say from, you know, deeper ocean layers and bring them in the lab and then incubate those with plastic. And hopefully that will, that will trigger that the plastic degrading microbes will, you know, increase in abundance. Then again, then we can look into the pathways and, you know, the steps a bit more of that degradation. Well, why, why not try to commercialize this right away and set up a situation where you can have microbes eat plastic, you know, at least one yeah. kind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think that's that's definitely that idea, right? And we, we're working on that. But so I, I, I talked to members of the industry and uh, you know some some other venture funds, and they are very interested, right? But what we have to do is we have to characterize the enzymes better. So, for example, what they want to know is, okay, you have this enzyme, right? So how efficient is it, right? What temperature, what pH does it work under? So I think we have to figure that out first. And then once we have those data, and that could be, you know, polystyrene, probably the first one and then others, then I think there's a good chance to actually commercialize that. But there's still a little bit more work that needs to be done. But do you see degradation in nature? Um, What do you see degradation of and where and how? Yeah, I would say you see it, but to be perfectly honest, it's it's a very slow process, right? That's why that's why plastic persists so long in nature. What usually happens, you 
probably your listeners know that, that, you know, the plastic, let's say, ends up in the ocean or, you know, somewhere on land. And then usually UV light and other mechanical factors break it down a bit. And then at some point, you know, the microbes can work on that. But it is, it is a very slow process. So to speed this up, right, what we, what we have to do is we would have actually have to, going back to the enzymes again, right, characterize the enzymes very well, see on the watch co- what conditions they work best, what temperature, for example. And then you can go a step further and actually optimize them. And there are several methods out there and uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, it's not very popular to do that to create s- several variants of that enzyme based on computational models and see if they are if they're more active, if they are faster, right? And there is already one example out there for an enzyme that creates PET, that's uh, polyethylene derephthalate, another plastic used for drinking bottles. And uh, researchers did cover the bacterium in a, in a landfill in Japan a while ago. And another group now has actually used that and then modified that enzyme. It's called protein engineering and made it to work faster. And I think that's something we have to do as well, because those enzymes that are in nature, they can degrade plastic, but at a very low rate, work it's very slow, and we have to really speed up the process. And yeah, the good thing is um, in science, molecular biology, we now have the tools to actually do that. Well, okay, so these enzymes are already working to degrade plastic. Again, why? It, it, who is trying to scale them up from batch to you know big processing plant, let's say? Or maybe put them out in nature and see if they're, uh, you know, they won't cause any trouble, but they can degrade plastic. Yeah, yeah, excellent question. The, the first step, the first step is definitely to have them, you know, in, in controlled conditions. So to in, to include those those plastic re- recycling enzymes, well, in the recycling process, right? So rather than releasing them into nature, because you can control it much better. And to your questions about the scaling them up. Yes, there are actually a few companies out there that are interested in doing that. And there are two of them that actually um, have already, one one has a pilot plant already. So there is a, a company in France that again uh, focuses on pets. So all those companies work on pet plastics because that was the first enzyme discovered and we know the most about it, right? So there is a pilot plant in France that's already operational as far as I know. And they and they want to upscale that to yeah to recycle quite a large amount of PET plastic, mostly bottles. There's also another company in Australia now that also works on PET. So I think over the next few years we will see more and more of those companies popping up. Originally, I would predict it's mostly PET plastic, and then you know when research, including our research, of other plastic types produces well characterized enzymes, maybe even modified enzymes, then we will see more of those plastic recycling plants that use biorecycling, right? And enzymatic-based biorecycling. I think we will, hopefully, we'll see more of those over the next years. So, okay. I mean, what are what are some of the considerations on how this will work, if it'll work, if it won't work? Like what, you know, what are some things that I would think people are starting to think this through to see if it makes sense and how they would scale it and everything. So like, I don't know, what are some of the considerations that you've seen people have in this regard? What are they looking at to make it a viable process and how will it be used? Like, what's your vision for that? Yeah, well, I think that there are many companies, right, that are, that are interested in getting this process to work. And there is, thankfully so, there's also not a pressure from the legislature from certain governments that want to increase the percentage of recycled plastic, right? Because right now in Australia, we probably recycle about 9% of our plastic. In the US, the last data I've seen, it was more like, Eight, 8.7%. So it's really a very small fraction that's recycled, right? So there's a lot of push to get 
this rate a little bit higher to to increase that. And uh, and a lot of uh, producers of plastics, you know, if that if that be like uh, clothes or you know drink bottles, they are also concerned about the carbon footprint. So there there is there is luckily there's a lot of incentive there to do it to actually to actually make it work. And when I talk to some members of the industry, despite this 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 goodwill, right, it comes down to cost. So those uh, companies that have those pilot plans, for example, they were told, yes, we support you, but you have to produce it at the cost that is similar or below virgin plastic. And that's and that's the first tall order to do it. And it seems it seems we're gonna get there because you can produce if you can culture microbes on a very large scale, you can harvest large amount of enzymes, you can really scale this up. So I'm very optimistic that that's gonna work out. But yeah, definitely the first one is is having the costs, right? To to have the costs low enough to make the work in the process. And, and the second one is, and that's, that's a concern in Europe is, right, if you have to modify the enzymes, that means at this point you have to, they are genetically modified, right? And uh, so that's why I think releasing them in the wild, for example, in the ocean, this might not be the best idea, but having them in a, you know, and the enzymes, it's not the microbes anymore, it's only the enzymes. Having them in controlled conditions in a, in a bioreactor, you know, inside the recycling facility. I think that that is definitely doable. And well, you know, that's one recycling plant, pilot plant already out there and they're doing it. So I think we are, we are well on the, on the, we on the right track there. Okay. That makes sense. I don't know. Do you think that these uh, enzymes or microbes can be packaged with food so that they could be released? Let's say, um, I don't know, I have a bottle of soda and I drink it and there's like a, a tab on the bottom of it. And once I'm done drinking it, I press that tab and let's say that releases as a, a cache of enzymes or microbes, and then they'll they'll degrade it much faster than other, otherwise would have been degraded. Do you see anything like that possibly coming? Something similar, maybe. That's that's not necessarily the microbes, but again, going back to the enzymes, there is some research underway to actually integrate the enzymes, right, in the plastic when you make it. And that's of course a rather, you know, sophisticated process. And that's, that seems to be possible, at least there's a prototype out there. I think the question is then exactly how do you trigger that, right? And it seems uh, one way to trigger that would be like a higher temperature or, you know, a very high moisture content. Of course, you have to be careful because you don't want to trigger that per accident when the product is still, you know, in the plastic bottle. So, yes, I think that's something along the lines what you were suggesting. Um, the other way, and it's probably easier to realize is, right, we have... Here in Australia and also in the US, um, I think more and more states have deposit schemes, right? Where people actually, they use the plastic bottle, they keep it, and then at some point they have a whole bag, they return it to a center, they get like 10 cents per bottle, right? If you have 100 bottles, you know, it adds up, you get a little bit of, uh, of money. And that way we can make sure that the plastic actually goes back and then can be returned to a recycling facility. I think that's probably the more feasible approach in, in the short run. Mm. Well, very good. Uh, Christian, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Keep tabs on it. Where can they go? There, there are many ways. You can go to, to my website. That's uh, rinkelab.org. You can also just Google my name, uh, Chris or Christian Rinke, and you will find publications. And yeah, if, if, you, if you just you know Google for super warm and plastic degradation at my name, you will find, you will find many articles by now, uh, even some videos if you're interested to look into that a bit further. Oh, and one more thing I wanted to ask from micro or sorry, from plastics, you know, taken back out of the wild. Is there evidence that microbes are degrading them or are they breaking apart from more mechanical means? Like what, what's being observed in the, you know, when people harvest plastics from 
rivers, lakes, streams, oceans, you know, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. The main understanding here is that it's initially it's uh, it's uh, abiotic factors, right? That's again, that's mechanical, like wave action. That is especially the UV light of the sun, right? That breaks down the, the plastic into smaller particles. There is although evidence that microbes degrade as well. One of them is, for example, a study that did electron microscopy, right? Very high resolution microscopy. And you could see microbes are settling on the plastic and they were actually pitting the plastic. So they were making a small pit where they were sitting and that indicated that they might be able to actually, you know, degrade the plastic there. There are hints like that out there that they do it, but in, in my opinion, it is it is a very slow process. That's why I think we have to learn from that. We have to learn from nature, right? Then bring it back in the laboratory, characterize the enzymes that are involved, optimize them to make them faster, and then eventually use them in a closed system in a, in a recycling process. Okay. Well, very good. Again, Christian, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, thanks a lot for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed. Yeah. Yeah.